This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today in studio, we have Dr. Kathy Shropshire. Uh, Now that she's taken a break from her one-woman show about the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science founder, Fanny Cook, she's in studio today to talk about the misunderstood armadillos of the state. Where exactly are they found, and how do they impact the environment? Do they make good pets? Those are some of the things that we'll discuss today. Dr. Major is here, ready to take some pet questions, and we always like to hear about your brushes with wildlife. So give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that uh, Creature Comforts airs twice each week, Thursday mornings at 9, with a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning to everyone. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, lots to talk about this morning before we get things going. Libby, I know you always like to talk about some upcoming events uh, to uh, promote. So what do you have for us? Let's see. I guess first put in a plug for all the camps around the state. If your child is particularly interested in the outdoors and nature study, in the sciences, there are a lot of wonderful summer camps. I guess that's true for any event, but the Natural Science Museum, the Clinton Nature Center, I think um, probably most um, any part of the state that was going to have something going on. I know Millsaps College and probably the other colleges too. too. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for something fun for them to do and get them away from the television set for a little <laughs> while, uh, look for one of those camps. And tomorrow at the Natural Science Museum is another fun Friday, June the 29th from 10 o'clock to noon. Uh, They'll be studying ancient civilizations, but they'll be studying it in a lot of fun ways, doing art activities and uh, little uh, very active things going on there. And then July the 6th, they'll talk about the wonders of electricity in a safe way, so how to play (laughs) with electricity and not get shot. (laughs) And then uh, there's an adult. Noon lecture, July the 3rd, again at the Natural Science Museum. And uh, Dr. Jennifer Lamb from Southeastern Louisiana University is going to talk about the secret lives of salamanders. We've talked about that on this show before. If you want to know how you might find salamanders or how best to um, conserve the ones that you know about or just want to know how they go about their lives, it'll be a a fun program, and that's, uh, again, July the 3rd at noon at the Natural Science Museum. All right. You mentioned electricity. I think uh, those little plugs, the, the plastic plugs that can stick in an outlet, uh, were probably invented with me in mind. One of my odd memories from childhood is I actually stuck a key uh, into an electrical Ooh. outlet, and I believe uh, someone had to beat me with a broom to sort of break the connection there. So. Oh, my goodness. And you <laughs> never explained that. Well, I'd explain a lot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so if you're ever wondering, that, you're right, Libby, that might be. Yeah, have a certain electricity <laughs> about you, yeah. Uh, so, Dr. Major, the, the weather here in Mississippi uh, been brutally hot, and we always like to remind folks of some uh, things to keep in mind when it comes to uh, pet health in this hot weather. Oh, exactly. And one of the things that we see a lot of times is people don't are not aware 
that when they're out walking the dog in the heat of the day, that this asphalt can get up to probably 140, 150 degrees, and any sustained time on the asphalt uh, certainly can cause the pads uh, of dogs to uh, basically burn. Mm-hmm. And uh, main things you have to really be worried about is ample water supply, shade uh, for the outside dogs, and, of course, the inside dogs need to be cared for as well, but obviously they're not as risk as the dogs that are outside and make sure there's ample water make sure there's ample water for the birds as well because uh you know we've had a lot of rain in the past what several weeks but uh still it goes away quickly as hot as it is and the birds need some water as well but be very careful a lot of people have fans set up for their their outside pets uh which certainly can move the air uh, in the shady areas especially and can uh, certainly help uh, keep them cool down. But be very aware, and it goes without saying, don't leave anything locked up in the car, shut up in the car uh, and when you're out and about, whether it's a child, whether it's dogs or whatever. Mm-hmm. It just uh, is basically as criminal to leave an animal locked up in the car. Troy, are the kiddie pools a good idea for dogs? A lot of dogs love them. Some don't, but I'd say the hotter it gets, the more they're (laughs) going to like it. But it's also an ample source of water to have the kiddie pool out. We see some dogs, though, that will just lay in it, which is fine. (laughs) And uh, But that's a great idea uh, because you have a lot of water in that, and uh, it's a good place. And I think a, a way to illustrate that the heat uh, with the car is, you know, if your car's been parked in a parking lot all day, even just opening the door, you can feel that waft of just hot air there. So always, uh, again, remember uh, to not keep anything locked up in your car when you leave. I don't know the exact figures, but, you know, even just 10 minutes in a locked car on a day that's 95 or something like that, uh, the temperature will get uh, 140, 150 and higher. Uh, if if left longer. Yeah, if you have any doubt, try to sit in your car yourself <laughs> with it turned off. You yeah. don't want to stay in there more than a couple minutes. Right. Um, so I, I'd seen something on the news, and that that's, I think, uh, when we talk about the pads on the bottom of a dog's foot, I think that is a lot of things that uh, owners might not really realize in the heat of the concrete. Would it be best maybe just to find you know, a, a, a trail, something where the, uh, that's not quite as hot uh, for for the dogs? It would be better to find a trail uh, or off on the grass. Uh, the other thing would be to walk walk your dog early in the morning and avoid, and maybe late in the afternoon, but avoid uh, the heat of the day. Uh, dogs are not quite as smart as cats when it comes to run, uh, unattended dogs now. They, they will tend to uh, run away. We've had some dogs that... Uh, basically have escaped or whatever and have run down the asphalt during the summertime and they can have some severe damage to their pads. Uh, cats, you never see a cat in the, in the midday sun running down, <laughs> running down the asphalt. They're pretty smart as far as uh, getting in the shade. They have a place, and uh, that's my opinion anyway. <laughs> Now, see, all the cat lovers are going to edit your 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 comment there, Dr. Major, and cut it off at dogs are not as smart as cats. <laughs> In certain ways. 
So what about in this uh, – I've seen this where the little dog shoes, uh, are those would be effective. In, in your experience, do dogs like wearing shoes? Uh, most dogs don't. Uh, most of the shoes are designed for rough territory like rocks and thorns and briars. Uh, some dogs may wear them, but I think in the summertime or in the heat, probably it would be counterproductive. Okay. So uh, our guest today is Dr. Kathy Shropshire. She's going to be talking to us about armadillos. Uh, so if you have a question about that, if you have a pet question, or if you have a brush with wildlife you'd like to share with us, our phone lines are open, and the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Uh, you can email the show as well, animals at mpbonline.org. So, Kathy, thanks for joining us again. Oh, thank you. It's always fun to be here. Uh, we did mention, and I think it's always good to remind folks uh, that you do that one-woman show about Fanny Cook. So if you could give us the quick history lesson on who Fanny Cook is and why she's such an important figure. Uh, Fanny Cook is our hero. <laughs> heroine, our heroine. Um, she is the person who's responsible for um, helping create the Mississippi Game and Fish Commission back in the 1930s. She spent six years of her life working with people to, to get legislation passed to create the Game and Fish Commission. And then once that was created and she was on staff, she eventually created the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So we have her to thank for uh, protection of our natural resources. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says you've taken a break. Uh, are there any upcoming um, appearances? Starting in September. Okay. <laughs> Start, we'll be at the Hummingbird Festival. Then we have a library in uh, Macomb and uh, the Teachers Association in October and something in November yeah, and Coast, yeah. two things in January already. So. Just curious, how how did you get interested in, in wanting to do the one-woman show? Um, well, I, I appeared as Miss Cook in a production that uh, Robbie Fisher was doing on the Gulf Coast about um, um, the creation of the uh, Gulf Islands National Seashore, and Miss Cook was um, part of the effort to protect the islands. And so it was just a like a cameo, I guess you'd say. <laughs> she just, you know, I just appeared. Well, then later, um, Nicole Smith at the Natural Science Museum said, do you think you could turn that into some kind of presentation? And I don't know why I said yes. <laughs> I just, it seemed like it made a lot of sense. And I guess it does. I'm, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed being able to tell that story because so many people don't know about her. And now with the book, Al, that Libby and, and Marion were responsible for, it's just it's two ways of getting that message out through through the, the presentation and also through the book. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we get back, we will begin our discussion about armadillos. So if you have a question, give us a call. Dr. Major here, ready for a pet question. And we always look with your look for your encounters with wildlife. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. We'll be back with more of the show after this. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Kathy Kathy Shropshire. Uh, She is a wildlife biologist and here to tell us more about armadillos. So if you have a question, a pet question, or wildlife experience you'd like to share with us, give us a call today. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, 672 7464 or send an email to animals 
at mpbonline.org. And we will start with an email from Rebecca. It says, uh, we have a small piece of property near Columbus that has a big ditch running through it that flows into Tibby Creek, a micro-ecosystem with various kinds of wildlife and interactions. We find deposits of turtle eggs in the open grassy areas and have even watched snapping turtles and box turtles lay their eggs there. Unfortunately, the next day, the eggs have been apparently dug up by something, possibly an armadillo or a possum, and the contents emptied. All we find are the egg shells. Some of the turtles are better at covering their eggs, but some leave them not very well hidden. Is there anything that we can do to help protect the eggs so that they can mature and hatch? We much prefer turtles to armadillos. <laughs> um. My first response would be to say it's probably uh, raccoons. Okay. But armadillos can um, eat eggs. I mean, there's some, but their mouths are not really (laughs) designed for that sort of thing. They eat insects and grubs and that sort of thing. So eggs, yeah, they would, and maybe if they broke one, they could get in and eat it. They're not going to not do that. But it's um, not as common as a raccoon certainly is going to go after the Raccoons seek out eggs. Yeah. And also I would say, too, if if you try to maybe cover them up, I mean, it's kind of messing with nature. And and doesn't nature have its way of balancing Balancing things out like that? Yeah. And it is frustrating, I know. I mean, we've we've worked with least turns on the Mississippi River and losing eggs to... To them from raccoons and so forth, it's sort of heartbreaking. But it's, if if you mm-hmm. find that something has dug them out and you cover it back, you need to be careful that you cover it back in kind of a manner that the mother did. If you bury them too deep in an attempt mm-hmm. to protect it, the babies are not going to be able to get out. Okay. When they're it's time for them to hatch. So, so the overall advice might be to uh, kind of just unfortunately maybe just let this go. Mm-hmm. But you could. Um, well, if you can control the it, raccoons in right. your area, that, I mean, there might be a way yeah. to fence it off yeah. somehow, for it, but you'd have to, you know, watch it mm-hmm. often. Raccoons sure. also go after bird eggs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so in this case, the armadillo is innocent. All well, right. Yeah, <laughs> more than likely. Okay. Yeah. More than likely. <laughs> yeah, if he was digging around those eggs, he was probably looking for insects yeah, right. in the ground. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right, so Kathy, tell us about uh, an armadillo. I correctly guessed it was a reptile, but you tell me it's a mammal. No, it is. It act, they actually do have some hair. So, yeah, they are um, distantly related to sloths, to three-toed sloths and um, the ground, giant ground sloths. They're distantly related to them. And um, if people are aware of things like pangolins, they're really not related to them, although the pangolins do have that same armor and so forth on them. But um, they're... Um, Came to, well, they moved up from um, uh, South America and the Central America back into Texas in the late 1800s and just kept marching their way across Texas and finally made it to Mississippi, Louisiana, Mississippi in the early 1900s and um, became established here. And there's there's several ideas about how they got here. Um, some, some of, you know, they could walk, of course, across bridges and that sort of thing. But there's also some evidence that they were brought in on um, trains back during the Depression when when people were bringing um, cattle into Mississippi for food and that there were armadillos on those trains and um, some of them escaped. Um, also, they can, during the 27 flood, they think there's some possibility that some of the armadillos from the west of the river floated across on debris from hmm. because it seems to be in the late 1920s and that sort of things where you start to see more and more of them coming into 
into Mississippi. So, you know, I'm sure people brought them as well. But I think there's definitely evidence for people bringing them into um, Florida even prior to that. So it's a novelty. People mm-hmm. are going to bring them in. Hey, look at this. Look what I've got. <laughs> You've never seen one of these and then let it go like we're prone to do sometimes. But they would probably get here on their own just as well. All right. Is it a, a myth that they walked on the roadbeds when they were building Highway 20? I remember being told that when I was I would a, think a kid perfectly. that they yeah. were moving east from yeah. Texas on, on Highway 20 from I, Dallas. I, I, yeah, well, I don't you know, know if yeah. that's true or not. Yeah, I, I would so. think it's yeah perfectly um, logical to think that that would happen. Yeah, and prior, you know, prior to that, they were already, they were coming in and... Um, you know, I mean, there's and then there's always the idea that the, the Yankees shot them through their cannons onto Vicksburg during the siege of Vicksburg. I have a problem with that. I don't think that's really – but people like that one as an old wives' tale. All right, let's uh, head to the phones. Got a couple calls to get to. We'll start with uh, Lee has called in today. Good morning, Lee. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Ms. Schwabscher. Yes. First of all, I'd like to um, say that when we were children in school – the teachers always told us that the armadillo was first named and found by the Spanish, early Spanish explorers, and that North America and South America and Central America were their basic habitat. I would like to know from you, these armadillos, since we know they're in North and South America, do they have a kindred to this thing they call a, a giant armadillo, and also do they spread leprosy? Did they and spread I'm going to let you explain <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are related to, to, um, to the giant armadillo, yes. They are. And there's other, several other species of armadillo that they're related to. The um, nine-banded, which is the one we have here, is the only one that comes routinely into um, – Mexico and North America and to the U.S. Um, and do they spread leprosy? Probably not. Um, they can get leprosy. They're one of the few uh, non-primate mammals that can get leprosy. And so, but it's probably not something that is they're exposed to it. It would be a, you know a difficult thing to say, but. I guess it would be possible if you're out there grabbing armadillos and touching them. I mean, yeah, I guess theoretically you could. But, again, it's one of those things that would be not, uh, you know, the, the chances of that would be very, very slim. But they are, have been used for research purposes on um, de- leprosy disease. Okay. Kathy, the yeah. only, uh, I would say, documented case that I know of or at least attested to be uh, was where someone was using armadillo for fish bait. And uh, actually, the hook came back and and hooked him in the chest, and mm. he did develop leprosy sore. Yeah, and it was treated, of course. But, right. Uh, right. Thinking about the armadillo, and of course, having lived in Hines County, mm-hmm. roughly, or Madison, or mm-hmm. wherever, most of my life, right in this area, we really had a strong influx of armadillos that population exploded probably in the late 50s and mm-hmm. 60s. We rarely saw an armadillo mm-hmm. in this area prior to then. And we don't see as many now. Uh, my kids, uh, if we mm. were going to the coast, uh, we had to do something to amuse us uh, <laughs> on the way the to deal. the coast. <laughs> and we did a roadkill count. <laughs> right. uh, mm-hmm. And 
Somebody had one the right side, and somebody had the left side. <laughs> and by the time we got to Hattiesburg, we usually had 15 or 20 on right. either side. Mm-hmm. And you just don't see. Maybe they've gotten smarter. Yeah, uh, maybe. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you really don't see that many armadillos uh, now. Yeah. I, I don't know. We can speculate. They, they, because they have a, a low body temperature. Um, so they can't really handle, um, you know, cold, cold temperatures are going to limit armadillos somewhat. So if you have really cold temperatures or something, that might be something that would limit them. Um, they're eating grubs or eating whatever, you know, chemical pesticides, herbicides, something like that may be limiting in some fashion. Um, they don't, you know, really have much competition. They're their major predator is the car. So, you know, the, once, a, once an armadillo gets pretty big, it's not going to be food for something else. And the little ones can be because their their shells are not um, hard yet. So they're, they're still soft and flexible. So they can be, you know, more often, as always, the young are probably more often the, the prey of a, of a, a species. But, um, um, you know, so I, I don't know why. Maybe it's probably a... Maybe a good thing you're not seeing as many. <laughs> All right, uh, Sue in Beaumont, I think, wants to talk about uh, the disappearing armadillos. Good morning, Sue. Go ahead. Major brought up something that I've noticed that uh, it, in the last few years, it, I've rarely, rarely ever seen an armadillo, even a roadkill armadillo. They used to come in my yard and dig up holes all over the yard. I still have those holes there because they, they're ferocious diggers, you know. And uh, they... They're an interesting-looking creature with their armored bodies and the hair sticking out there. They're, I mean, are they in the fossil record? How far back do they go? Oh, my goodness. That, yeah, I'd have to and, look that one up. <laughs> and also, I'd like to ask, um, do they have any natural enemies, and uh, how far north is their range? And also, uh, it, well, I guess that's it. All right. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's Thanks, see. for the call. Right. They have been recorded as far as um, Nebraska. Um, North Carolina, South Carolina, you know, that far. And, uh, you know, there's some indication, Indiana, um, southern Indiana, that far. Um, natural predators, again, um, would have to be large animals like, you know, a bear or wolf or a cougar or maybe bobcat. But, again, they could be predator, uh, the, the um, prey species for something like a, a, a large uh, raptor or something could get, a, you know, the young um, but really, cars are probably the the biggest impact. Um, what was there was another was there another question? I think that was. The, uh, was that the, <laughs> I wanted to follow. Up. Why are they the poster child for roadkill? Because they have a tendency when they're frightened to jump up, which is not a good thing. When you're right at ground level and you see a car coming, and you know there's two maybe two lights coming at you at night, and you jump up, you just wiped yourself out I'm either under the car or in front of the car <clears throat> so that's the major reason that they get hit because otherwise some vehicles could just you know ride right over them and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a problem but that it works well when they're trying to avoid predators excuse me <clears throat> because they tend to um you, you know jump and run and that startles whatever's chasing them and gives them just you know that split second maybe to get into their their um their hole or den, their tunnel or whatever, and then they zigzag quite a bit. So that works well, except for cars. 
So um, what parts of uh, – remind us again, you mentioned there was one kind of armadillo that's found here in Mississippi. And then again, is it pretty much throughout the state or do they tend uh, yes. to concentrate in different areas? They're, they're, they're widespread, yeah. And people aren't seeing but they're at my house. If you, if you want to see some, come to my house. I had four babies in the yard this spring. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. What about uh, – That's something Yeah, we might want to talk about just real quick. Um, when they have young, they are four identical – Quadruplets. They, one egg is fertilized, and that that splits, and they have so they'll have four identical males or four identical female hmm. young. So, so that makes another reason they're they're sometimes used or have been used for research, genetic research, because you've got four of exactly the same thing. So. Mm-hmm. So what about uh, the adults size-wise? What would you com- what other animal might you compare them to? They're usually compared to the size of a of a possum, a grown possum. They can be okay. up to 14 pounds, something like that. Well, they can be bigger, but that would be kind of huge, but all right. Mm-hmm. And again, found all throughout Mississippi. Right. They tend to like, you know, places where they can dig is going to be better, easier if they're, you know, in more maybe a um, little bit damper habitats, probably where it's just easier to dig. Because that's what they're mostly doing is they're digging for grubs and insects. And, you know, they'll they'll get into your garden. That's a good spot and dig for grubs and insects and also can destroy some of your you know melon plants. And maybe they're looking for insects and maybe they're after the the um the insects that are around or maybe they're after the the melon itself and there's you know they will eat some um carrion but again that might just be because they're looking for the insects that are on the carrion and they're just eating that as a as a side but and there's been some in- instances where you know they'll eat um small um um Amphibians, reptiles, especially in the winter when they're not moving quite as quick, and because an armadillo cannot, ha- it doesn't hibern- hibernate, so they're out moving around all year long. So they're looking for for food all year. Okay, <laughs> uh, we're going to take another quick break. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion about armadillos with our guest uh, Kathy Shropshire, and uh, Doctor Majors here, ready to take some pet questions. And we always like to hear your encounters with wildlife. So give us a call because the phone lines are open at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 7464 You can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with a wildlife biologist, Dr. Kathy Shropshire. She's our armadillo expert for the day. So if you have a question about armadillos or a pet question or a brush with wildlife, we'd like to hear from you this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Seven four six four. So, Kathy, you mentioned from one egg there will be four baby armadillos, and I was not sure to use. I don't is nest the right term for where they they're in a den, and and then they will bring um, vegetation into the the, the den to make a make a nest, if you will. So, yeah, they're down and they dig huge tunnels, um, which are also used by a lot of other animals as well: skunks, rabbits, snakes. um, you know, just other animals that that like tunnels and things. They help, you know, they can kind of live together that way. Now, I have heard that they don't do well with um, gopher tortoises, that, you know, they will, um, they don't tend to 
what, for whatever reason, they don't seem to want to share <laughs> that. But, so they they have been recorded as uh, not taking, you know, not those two species not getting along very well, but a lot of other species uh, use those tunnels that they dig. And that, that provides them a way to, to escape, too. They don't stay in them all the time, but it's a good place to escape and also have their young. And so um, is it pretty much a family unit or are the little no. babies out on their own once? Uh... It's about six months. I think they are, the babies are on their own and they're out. You know, it's, just, you know, it's a lot of food out there for them. So they don't need to, to um, you know, once mama said that's enough, they kick them out. And then they're solitary after that. However, Libby was just saying she found a bunch. And you want to tell them about that? It was, it was a strange thing. And we I've never... Nobody's ever been able to explain. I was thinking Kathy Mom. I will. I'll explain it. Yeah. It was a flood stage on the Mississippi River, and we were canoeing around with John Rusky, and we found what I described as a nest, and it did. It looked like a a circle of of, um, armadillos all rolled up into their little balls, just like they were eggs or something, little Easter Mm -hmm. eggs. And the the area was all surrounded with water, so I'm thinking they may have been stressed. And we touched them and kind of rolled them around, and they would, like, almost like they were asleep, they would kind of, like, start to unfold, and then they'd snap back together. Hmm. So we rolled them all back in their little deal and canoed away, but I always wondered if that was some kind of a survival mechanism or something. Well, they can um, float. They can they can suck in water and um, uh, suck in water, suck in air that will allow them to float. And so maybe they you know, they may have been just exhausted at that point. Oh, maybe they had and been floating. Maybe they had been, and that was you know somehow whatever uh-huh. reason they were able to find that that spot there. And then they can also. Um, uh, they can walk underwater for a short distance. Now, I don't think they can walk across the Mississippi River, but for <laughs> small um, waters, bodies of water, they can walk on. Uh, like if they were crossing a creek, they'd mm-hmm. just walk on the Probably. bottom mm-hmm. instead of swimming. Because they don't, they can, you know, not breathe for like six minutes. Because uh-huh. when they're digging for their insects, they got to, cl- you know, they, they can't breathe while they're digging for insects. So that also allows them to to hold their breath if they're underwater for. They say six minutes. That's new. Right. Yeah. Back cool. to the phone lines we go. Uh, Steve's called in from Memphis today. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air with us. Hey, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I have two quick questions, and I'll take the answers off the air. First of all, is it true that armadillos have some kind of a foul scent or a scent gland like a skunk that makes them uh, as a defense mechanism? And and the second quick question is, is it? I believe armadillos are beginning to migrate farther north, possibly due to climate change. And if that's true, um, how aggressive is their migration and how far north are they getting? And I'll take my answers off the air. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for the call, Steve. Okay, yeah, and they are moving farther north, and yes, as, as you know, as climate changes, it gets warmer. That just provides more habitat for them. So they are, you know, they don't move that fast. I mean, they can for short distances. So it's just going to be a slow, steady process. Like I said, they first appeared in Texas, um, you know, along the Mexican border back in the late 1800s and, you know, took them about 100 years or so to make it to Louisiana and Mississippi. So it's, you know, it's a slow process unless somebody helps them along with a 
little little car ride occasionally. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the other one? It was Do they have called? any kind of scent? Uh, oh like a yeah, they. No, I've never noticed it, and I have been around armadillos all my life. Um, but they do have some sort of scent. Maybe we can, we don't pick it up, but they do use scent to mark their territory as well as um, urinating and defecating. They also use that to mark their te- territory. But they do have some sort of scent glands that, that they use for that. But I've never noticed a, a strong scent. And uh, in terms of – we talked about maybe kind of the migration, but in terms of a range, would are they pretty much once they're in an area kind of happy to be right. there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, once they found an area, they're not going to keep moving around too much. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, Got another call to get to. This time we're off to Calhoun County. Dudley has called in today. Good morning, Dudley. Go ahead. Good morning. I'm not a real fan of the armadillo, and I do think the lady is a brave one to come, to come on and discuss armadillos. Uh, but my question, uh, do they eat fire ants? They can, yeah, yeah, they can. You know, they're but again, you know, again, it's they're not going to they, they can't outcompete the fire ants. They're still going to be here. Um, but yeah, they do eat fire ants. They've got, you know, they they stick their tongue out. They're like an ant eater. They stick their tongue out and can grab the insects, and then they've got peg like teeth inside. They don't have any incisors or. Um, um, you know, teeth in the front of their mouth. All of what they have are like peg-like teeth in the back, for that's for, to, to crunch up whatever they're eating. So, yeah, they can. It's just they're never going to outcompete fire ants. I'm afraid. <laughs> Do they have a natural predator? No, not really. I mean, they once they're once they're an older animal, there's very little that's that's going to um, predate on, a, on an older animal. The younger ones, the, there is some predation from. Um, larger uh, mammals and, and perhaps even, you know, raptors, but um, not much. All right. Dudley, thanks for your call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Uh, we've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to call in and talk to our guest this morning, it's uh, Kathy Shropshire. We're talking about armadillos. Uh, Dr. Major's here, ready to take some pet questions as well. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, Kathy, what kind of noise do they make? What I've heard is more of like a, a real soft grunting sort of noise, like a, you know, just when you think of like a pig rooting, and mm-hmm. uh, that's the only noise. And maybe a high squeal if they're scared. But it's it's you know, it's not anything loud or anything. But 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 talking about the squeal, they they have been called the Hoover Hog. Because back during the Depression, people caught armadillos and ate them. And they don't have a lot of fat. That's another reason they, they can't. Um, their temperature de- um, limited um, because they don't have a lot of fat. So the, if we've got any brave listeners out there who want to try eating some armadillo, <laughs> apparently work during the Depression. If you're hungry enough, you'll eat it. But apparently it was pretty good back then. All right. So if, if you have any armadillo uh, uh, recipes. recipes to share with us, uh, you can give us a Yeah, call. if anybody has eaten armadillo, we want to know. We want to know. Armadillo on the half shell. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That sounds pretty good, actually. I think a very trendy restaurant might pick right. that up. Give it some sort of fancy name and people don't ever know what they're eating. Right. Uh, next, let's go to our friend Kathleen from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Go ahead. Boy, I'm just misapropos today. I actually have an old cookbook uh, <laughs> that has a recipe for armadillo. All right. If I go rummaging through it, I'm going to make sure you all get a copy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Send me a copy of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it had some strange ones in there with what what they used to eat, but it was um I guess it was right around the turn of the century, you know. Um I wanted to get some information. <clears throat> One, do armadillos eat frogs? Two, uh Jeremiah the bullfrog is not Jeremiah, it's Jemima. <laughs> she had several dozen little tadpoles and they've actually got feet now so she's doing fine. One, I got a question on the frogs. Do they eat underwater? And at night, do they stay in the water or do they go in a, a toad hole? That I, I got y'all covered. <laughs> All right. Kathleen, always good to hear from you. Thanks for the call. Uh, would an armadillo eat a frog? Well, it could. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, they will eat some some small amphibians and reptiles, so they could. Yeah. Okay. I don't think that's going to be, again, it's not going to be something they're seeking out, but they could. All right. Uh, and anyone know about whether a frog would spend the, the night under underwater? I guess frogs are in. Breathe. Yeah. So. Well, I don't know. <laughs> probably not. Hmm. If the, now, wait, are you saying if the frog would spend the night mm-hmm. underwater? I think that's what she was asking. Well, me, yeah. all right. If during the winter, that's sort of what they do. They estivate, they dig into the mud of a bank mm-hmm. or a creek yeah. or something. And then they would, I guess you could call that sleeping underwater. Yeah. Okay. Uh, got some more phone calls to get to. Next, we've got uh, Jackie in Madison. Looks like she's got a pet question for us. Go ahead. You're on the air. I do- adopted a uh, mixed breed border collie, small dog from the pound about three months ago. It's Jackie. And- <laughs> Hi, Libby. Hey. Um, and uh, when we would get up, if she was laying on the floor on the other side of the room, she would jump up and kind of yelp. And we thought it was a psychotic thing that she just had been abused maybe and thought we were going to get up and kick her. So we tolerated it for a long time, and it kept getting worse and worse. We have a crate. We keep her in the crate at night. Uh, She's two years old, and they did have um, shots done. I went to the place that they went uh, at PetSmart. And um, But we couldn't figure out. It kept getting worse and worse. And we got a training collar for her to, lead, to you know, teach her to uh, walk with us. And she's very smart. But this yelping business, and it's not a yelp of um, uh, its pain. It, somehow she's in pain. So I've taken her to the vet a couple of times. And the vet has put her on uh, two muscle relaxants and a, um, no, two pain and one muscle relaxation. They tell me if we do an x-ray, it may or may not show anything if it's a pinched nerve. She could have been hit by a car when she was young. We don't know the history. Um, That's going to be around $200. And then if we go to Mississippi State for a CAT scan, that's like $1,800. And surgery is like five or $6,000. Is there, why take an approach on this that's not extravagant? Um, We've always had dogs that we've kept till they're 15. We have a 15-year-old border collie, and we've had kidney surgery to the tune of almost 3000 on one dog. Okay. But what dog we've had for three months, I'm trying to figure out what's best okay. for her and not keep her in pain. Other times she runs around all the time. they telling me to uh, keep her in her crate, just take her out on a halter, don't do a neck collar, take her out on a halter, let her do her business and bring her right back in and put her in her crate. Well, that's driving her nuts. Okay, question. Describe again what she's doing. Okay, she'll be laying down um, on her side, and when she gets up, she'll yelp. And so it seems to be in the neck area or the shoulder area. She also, when she walks or when she sits, she'll lift up her right paw a little bit. 
Uh, if she's standing, she'll lift up her right paw. Not all the time. We thought it was just a quirk. But they're saying maybe that is a way to alleviate the pain in her neck. Okay. So. Certainly it could be. Not seeing her, it's hard to tell you exactly. I don't know that uh, x-rays are going to show anything. Uh, yeah. Certainly there can be a, a CT scan for less than $1,800, I believe. If you've checked the referral center uh, here in Jackson uh, and talked to them about it, uh, the Animal Emergency and Referral Center, that is run by Mississippi State. Right. Uh, check with them on that. Does the pain medicine help at all? It does. Now, she does have episodes even with on pain meds. I give it yeah. twice a day, uh, morning and night, and she will have, um, uh, well, she had kind of, after she was on it for about a day, and a half, we were down uh, at our farm in Macomb, and she uh, kind of walked around the room kind of screaming, uh, yelping, okay. and then that subsided. So occasionally she'll still yelp. If she feel, hears us getting up, if we're in bed or if she hears us getting up, she wants to get up right away, and that right. sudden rise seems and, to cause her to yelp. And you said she's on at least two medications? Uh, three. Three. Vetprofen, gabapentin, and diazepam. Okay. I'm not sure which one of those is helping her. You might try experimenting with taking her off of one or the other uh, and see how that does. As far as surgery, I'm not so sure that there is a surgery that's going to help this, but uh, no. probably an X-ray and or a CT scan might show something, but I'd be reluctant to say that surgery is going to help. She probably was hit by a car or had some accident uh, before you got her. So uh, good luck to you. And, uh, so I do, wish I... do the x-ray as, a, as just the first step. I, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I would do that and see. Okay? Okay. All, All right. right. I appreciate it. Thank Take you. Care. All right, thank you. Thanks for your call. Let's get one final call in before our last break, and it goes to Barbara, who's called in today. Good morning, Barbara. You're on the air with us. Thank you so much. I, I just want to know if there's anything in the world we can do about moles that just tear up the whole oh. yard. Kathy, we've addressed this before, haven't we? Uh, yeah, and, you know, nat- natural control is best. Uh, I would suggest a Jack Russell or two. Uh, they would be glad to dig them up and uh, catch them, I think. Other than that... Uh, yeah, even if you have to Libby. borrow a friend's dog to yeah, come and Libby. visit. Uh, yeah, and I guess the first thing is, are you sure it's moles and not voles? What did you say, my- Moles or voles with a V. The moles well, they, uh, are... I think they're pretty much moles. That's what everybody that sees. A lot of people are having trouble with them, too. Uh-huh. But they just tear up the yard so much it's hard to keep and walk in it. Makes them, yeah. you know, you can see that they've made little mounds, I guess mm-hmm. you call it. You might look it up just to be sure. Now, yeah, a mole is going to make more of a tunnel looking on the, well, think, on the yeah, surface. Well, I think, tunnels, and then they, you can see where they've broken through on top, and it, that's what... That's what happens is a hole and then a, then a mound. That's no, probably is moles, then, you think, Kathy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the vole, it's sure, more underground, sure. but it actually the vole's harder to get rid of because it eats the plant roots. The moles are after insects. Uh, is this something that's, is it fairly new, or have you been, this is an ongoing No, it's issue. happened once before, and I found something that was called Moby Gone, and it, you have to spray it across the yard with 
you know, the hose goes through it, the water goes through it, mm-hmm. and that worked. Mm-hmm. But now you can't even get that anymore. So apparently it had something in it. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. it might be bad for your light. pets. Yeah. 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 Um, so I can't find that at all, and I just have no idea what to do about the things. Well, I don't know that it works or not. If you look in some of the catalogs that go online, there are uh, vibrators that uh, you actually stick in the soil, and it makes vibration and supposedly helps with that. Uh, to tell you more, uh, I don't know if they even make. They used to make mold traps. Well, they used to make, yeah. they used to make they still mold, mold bait, and we saw quite a bit of poisoning of dogs with yeah. that. Uh, yeah. It was very effective. Uh, yeah, it's going to kill any other mammal right. that gets. So, Get hold uh, of it. Maybe somebody else has had some experience with the moles. They could help us with this as far as maybe helping uh, Barbara uh, get rid of her mole problem. Did Yeah, did you look for mole traps, Barbara? <laughs> oh, well, some one of the one of the neighbors told uh, said about there were mole traps, but she was describing how it works, and, and she said you'd have to have a whole bunch of them to do any good because it's, you yeah, know, they, yeah I guess that could yard, get expensive, so yeah. To, Although know. one mole or a small group of moles can do a lot of damage, so if you could get rid yeah, of one or two, you, it would help. Yeah, they've really yeah. torn up the yard. And and I had an armadillo that was digging under my house <laughs> at one time, and I I called somebody that set out traps. He finally caught the armadillo, and I hope that's the last one. <laughs> that All right, duh. Barbara, thanks for the call. Sorry that we couldn't offer you a little bit more uh, advice, but again, uh, if uh, you have some, uh, if you're listening and have some experience and some success uh, treating mm-hmm. moles, uh, either call us or send us an email. And we'll try to share that on the air. We need to take one final break. When we get back, we'll wrap up Creature Comforts today with our guest Kathy Shropshire. We've been talking about armadillo. We'll be back to wrap up Creature Comforts after this. If you miss anything on MPB Think Radio, you can always stay up to date by logging on to our website at mpbonline.org or use your mobile device and download our MPB public media app. This is MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Got a few minutes left to visit with our guest today, uh, Dr. Kathy Shropshire. She's been talking about armadillo. Uh, so, Kathy, um, would an armadillo make a good pet, and is that even legal? Well, then we get to the legal thing. <laughs> I suspect you could. I'm not sure. Libby, will have, you will have to check on yeah, that. Yeah, we need sure. Richard Rummel back. He right. was on last week. Um, and there are so few things that you really can't. You would need to call the Department of yeah, Wildlife right. and see if you and needed some you, kind of a permit right. to and do And I that. don't think they're not terribly cuddly. Um, and they can dig out. If you're going to put them in a pen or something like that, they're going to dig. I mean, you know, they're, they're going to be hard to feed, they're going, aren't they? And I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I would think it'd be hard to feed them, too, because to get them what they really need, which is those insects and things. Mm-hmm. To you don't them. want to fall back on feeding them dog food or cat food, right? because that's not good for wild animals, although people do that sometimes. Yeah, the little ones are awfully cute, but then they grow up as, you know, <laughs> to be bigger armadillos. So I would not think they'd be terribly good make terribly good pets they have some pretty good claws too yes yes and you know there was a recent etv special on pangolins and the lady had one in her house and it was it was adorable but i'm not sure that works well for armadillos 
Also, I guess because they've not ever been domestic. I mean, it's basically taking a wild animal and right. trying to make it a pet, which to me does not really sound like it's ever a very good idea. I can't imagine it well. being very happy. No. Yeah. No, no, yeah. No. I mean, it might p- cause problems for you, but as, as Libby mentioned, mm-hmm. probably not real real good for the for the armadillo either. Right. All right. Well, how about uh, we talked about moles. Are there some ways that uh, homeowners can either uh, get rid of or discourage uh, armadillos? There are armadillo traps, and they work fairly well, apparently. We've had, you know, some of our neighbors have tried them, and they've been very successful in getting, but you know, a good dog in the yard. I mean, my dog can't stand armadillos, <laughs> so she can't get to them. She's in a pen, but she's going to bark at them every time she, she gets a chance. So if you right. had a free-ranging dog, that would certainly... Several, several of the hardware stores I know carry the ar- armadillo traps. Mm-hmm. They're they're made locally in mm-hmm. general, right. and uh, they will work. Yeah, yeah, they were very successful. So that would so. pretty much be like one of those uh, trap and release where you would trap them and then maybe drive them out in the country and <laughs> yeah, to bring them out to our house. Yeah. Don't, bring them, don't bring them to my Maybe yet. that's why I have so many. Nobody else does. They, yeah. they found the rut in Midway Road. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the responsible thing to do would be to find a landowner that does not mind you releasing your armadillo. And actually, I guess I don't mind. I'd rather take the armadillo than I would the raccoon from your yard. All right. That is going to wrap up our discussion today. Uh, Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by generous contributions from listeners like you. And we want to say thanks to folks who helped us out on our fundraising drive last week. If you need to hear today's show or previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Kathy Shropshire, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned up next at 10. It's MPB's Season Pass. And we'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.